The scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also ascended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of faith and of all the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Serge. The Lord is with you. I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's pray together. Breathe on us now, breath of God. Fill us with life anew that we may love what you love and do what you would do. Through Christ our Lord, amen. I want you to know how grateful my wife and I, Judith and I, are to be part of the NPC family. How grateful we are to be given the privilege of serving as a pastor in a local church. And I mean that, to serve you and to serve our staff. I also want to express my gratitude to God for the ministry of Alan Poole, my brother from another mother. That's what I call him. He blushes when I say that. He's done wonderful work as a transitional pastor following Dr. Renwick's re retirement. Some of you may know that my friendship with Alan goes all the way back to the 90s. And as I said to some other people, at that time I used to have hair. But it's really something to think about the way our lives intersected 
over the last few months here at National. And I consider that a sign of the Holy Spirit that we are, we're on the right path. I know that Alan has been, along with the other pastors, Donna and Quinn and, and Lisa, have been leading you in the reading of Ephesians. It's a book that I love. I don't think it's possible to read Ephesians without being confronted with this big, massive vision that Paul has for God's church, a church that glorifies God through its unity, its diversity, and its spiritual maturity. You know, several years ago, I was not in the best of shape. And so I made an appointment to see my doctor, and he ran several tests, and after the tests, he sat me down, he showed me the blood work, and this doctor did not mince words. And for that, I think about that meeting with him back then, I thank him for that. My cholesterol was way off the charts. I was, for a, for a former athlete, I was not even close to what I used to look like at the time. Too much weight. And what he wanted to do was to prescribe medication for, as a way to resolve my problems. And I looked him in the eye and I declined. And he looked surprised and I told him why. I said, I want to change my lifestyle not manage my health through medication. And I did say to him that if after a year nothing changes, then I will come back to him and I'll try his way. I've often wondered, when you think about the physical body, think about the spiritual body, I've often wondered what would it look like if local congregations would do an annual physical and some would say, well, pastor, we already have an annual checkup. We have what's called a, an annual report, and we have, a, we have an annual meeting. But I question, and I mean that genuinely, whether an annual report is comprehensive enough to analyze in a deep way the health of a local congregation. So if we had an annual physical, what would it look like for the church? Well, maybe we could examine the church's diet. What are we, what are we being fed? Are we, being, are we feeding on the, the richness of God's word or are we sort of taking in a sort of pop culture junk food? Is the congregation sedentary and overweight? Or is the church spiritually fit? Are they exercising the muscles of prayer and service and compassion and hospitality? Are they exercising the muscles of generosity, not just in the giving of money, but, but in, the, in the total sense of giving our time and our God-given talents and, yes, our resources for the kingdom of God? Maybe the, the examination would involve sight, can they see beyond themselves, or do they suffer from presbyopia? <laughs> Choir, have you heard of presbyopia? It means, yes, it means short-sightedness. Churches are famous for that. Or do they have 20-20 vision? Well, the closest example of, 
of, of, of a church being prodded and poked and examined that I've found in the Bible is found in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. If you haven't read it in a while or you've never read it before, it's worth your time. Jesus is described as the one with blazing eyes, and he can see beneath the surface of things. You can't fool him. He sees past our pretensions, and he knows every hidden thing. He knows what's going on in these seven churches. And when, it's all, when it was all over, Jesus then provided a detail, Dr. Jesus, provided a detailed analysis of each church's health. And it was a mixed report. Some of the churches got A+, plus, perfect picture of health, doing well. Some of the churches needed oxygen. Some of the churches needed life support. And one of the church, Jesus says, you're dead. Jesus then went on and said, if you are to thrive, and I want you to thrive, I don't just want you to survive. If you are to thrive, then he says, I, wanna, I want you to follow my prescription. And he says two things to them. Really, you could sum it up in two things. He says, first of all, I want you to listen. Listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And as churches, we are famous for kind of going it our way. Makes sense. Why don't we just do it? Something that the business world would do, it should work in the church world, let's just do it. But Jesus says, hold on, I may have another plan. I want you to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches. And the second thing he says, I want you to repent. When you think about the words that we've been reading in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, I think through the preaching of Alan and Donna and Lisa and Quinn, I think, I think those messages help us to do those two things, to listen and to repent and to think about what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. If you're here this morning, you're online, you are new in your reading of the Bible, maybe you're new to reading Ephesians, I say welcome. Because I want you to notice when you read the letter, that it's broken up into two major parts. At least I'm, I'm making it simple now. It's broken up into two major parts. There's a, there's a doctrinal section in chapters one through three, and then there's this practical section that we heard Serge read, and, and really you can read all the way through to chapter six, this practical section. Ephesians one through three, the spotlight is on God. God is at the center, not us. God is the one who is acting. God knows, God sees, God, God elects us, God makes us alive, God forgives our sin, God adopts us and redeems us and seals us with the Holy Spirit and reconciles Jews, Jews and Gentiles together in this one body called the church. And you could just hear the excitement in Paul as he gets to the end of chapter 3. Because Jews and Gentiles who were once alienated from each other by their religion and their race and their ethnicity, they're now reconciled. Paul says that middle wall is broken down and what was two is now one through the cross. What was fractured different at different markets. Cross, children to play with each other. But now through the cross... They're fellow citizens of God's household. They now worship together. They break bread together. They call each other brother and sister, and they share a common life. And that 
is what a healthy church looks like. When I read these words, my heart races because this is what America needs today. The miracle of the cross because we're such a divided nation and that healing can only come through the cross. And then Paul ends chapter 3 with a blessing, and he says, now to him, he's given all the glory to God, he says, now to him by the power at work within us is able, God is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And it really gets big. He says to all generations forever and ever, Amen. That's the big vision that's for the church. And then you turn the page over in chapter 4, and Paul then makes a pretty dramatic shift from doctrine to practice because faith and practice must never be separated. And just listen again what he says. You could look at it in your notes or look at it in the Bible. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, I therefore, prisoner in the Lord, beg you, appeal to you, urge you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he tells them how, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. In fact, you could read it as putting up with one another in love, making every effort, every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so that day after the doctor gave me the grim news, before I walked out of the doctor's office, he handed me a sheet of paper and on it was a list of foods and exercises that he wanted me to do. And I had a choice to make that day. I could either take listen to what he said, try to change my, my, my habits, take that home, and begin integrating what I'm now hearing into my life, or, and I do this many times, my wife is here, she can tell you, I could go home and just stick it on the refrigerator, well-intentioned, and just keep doing what I'm doing. But I'm glad I changed my ways. And I think in a similar way, Paul is reminding them that now that you know what God has done for you in Christ, I want you to put it into practice. Put into practice these virtues. I, I literally listened to a sermon Alan preached weeks ago where he, in the sermon he talked about minding the gaps, making sure that character and conduct align with creed and confessions. Let's just look again at those virtues. You saw it on the screen. Let's just look at it one more time. There are four of them. There is humility. There is gentleness. There is patience and then bearing or putting up with each other in love. That is what we're called to practice as a body of Christ. There's a much longer list of those fruits, those virtues that you'll find in Galatians chapter 5. I've got to caution you though, because maybe some of you are new to the faith. Some of you are investigating Christianity. Some of you may not even believe in Christianity. But I'm still glad you're here and I want to caution you because just like back then, it's happening the same way today. First century Greeks and Jews, first century Greeks and Romans laughed 
and dismissed those virtues you're looking at on the screen as a sign of weakness. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche scornfully would have dismissed those virtues as fostering what he liked to call a slave religion. He said, look, if the meek are to inherit the earth, they cannot do this by remaining weak. Because in my, his mind, weakness was a, meekness was a sign of weakness. But Paul would beg to differ. He's in, a, he's in a prison cell. But he's unbowed and unbroken. And in that prison cell, he calls the church to a different way of living. He doesn't call them to engage in cultural wars with the Roman Empire. He doesn't call them to pick up arms and storm the, the Roman capital. Instead, he issues a call to live like Jesus before a majority pagan culture. And you say, well, what, what good would that do? How do we change the world by adopting those values? Well, it's simply because these values are necessary to live the mission of God in the world. I would say to you this morning that without that kind of lifestyle, the church is clearly sick, and I'm using big C now, and suffers what I call a massive credibility gap. Folks inside and outside of the church will begin to question, and they're already doing it. Does knowing Jesus Christ change anything? And that is a question that has tremendous resonance for the future of the church because long before the pandemic of 2020, Lots of people, various news outlets, have been writing and painting a very grim picture about the difficulties facing the church in the West <clears throat> and in North America. Christian leaders and pundits already declaring that Christianity in America is dying. They say that the American church, and you've heard this, is poised to follow the path of churches in Western Europe with their soaring Gothic cathedrals and empty pews. Their shuttered buildings have been converted into skate parks and restaurants and nightclubs. Some people say it's the, it's the, 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 the constant drumbeat of living in a secular society where God isn't necessary. And so one theologian said that Christianity as a norm is probably gone for good, or at least for the next hundred years. And you say, well, why would they say this? What's their basis? What's their basis for such claims? Well, they look at the attendance, the steady decline in church attendance. They look at the almost weekly drumbeat of clergy scandals and the political infighting. They look at the inability that many churches have in connecting with that next generation who will pick up the mantle of faith. And they're saying that that next generation is increasingly checking the box, no affiliation. The shift toward love of party and political messiahship instead of love of the kingdom of God and Jesus as Messiah and on and on and on it goes. I'm not here to be a a doomsday prophet, I don't share that pessimism at all. I don't want you to become disheartened. I want you to remember though, I want you to be a student of history. I want you to read those first, second, third century writers 
And remember that ours is not the first generation to face these kinds of difficulties. Those first century believers knew a thing or two about hardships. They were a minority movement in a majority pagan culture. They were persecuted, they were hounded, ostracized, belittled. And if I can use a modern term, they were canceled. So yes, get used to it. The church in every culture will face hardships, but Jesus promised, Jesus promised that when those times come, don't be dismayed. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I'm building my church. The gates of hell will not prevail, and so on and so forth. Jesus promises that he's going to stay with us in those hardships. Look at this sentence on the screen and tell me if you recognize it. I'm just going to ask for a show of hands. Don't tell, me, don't tell anyone what it is. So there it is, leading people to become faithful followers of Jesus Christ together in God's word. How many of you recognize those words? All right. How many of you are saying, what is that? I don't recognize those words. All right. That's great. Take a look at your bulletin and you'll find that those words represent the heartbeat of why this church exists. This is why we're here. It's to lead people to become faithful disciples and followers of Jesus. But I love that last phrase, we're doing it together in God's, in God's world. And so in order to do that, though, those habits are critical. Humility, gentleness, patience, and putting up with each other in love. Those habits are critical. And what those habits do for us, they ultimately lead us into the bigger aims of the church, namely its unity, its rich diversity, and its spiritual maturity. Why, 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 why unity? Well, again, if you look at your text, you'll read it. It says there's one body. Jesus only gave us one church. There's nothing else that Jesus has put on this earth to accomplish Jesus' mission. It's one church, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God over all. And I love that. That is such a huge correction to part of the dark history of many countries in the world where there was this kind of elitism that would say something like this, that God is for us. And often, when you look at the color of the skin, they thought they were the center of the universe, and they forgot that Paul said that God is this one God over all, irrespective of your ethnicity or your race. It's a good thing to know. Jesus said, a house divided will not stand. The psalmist write, writes, how good, how pleasant it is when God's people dwell together in unity. So I'm a newbie around here, right? And I just completed one week hanging out with your wonderful church staff. And I'm having a ball getting to know each and every one of them. They're passionate. They're gifted. They bring so much to the, t to the table. And my quickly emerging friend, Jonathan Edwards, who was up here earlier, and I love Jonathan's name. What a famous name, huh? <laughs> Jonathan, how good can it get, right? I'm Jonathan Edwards, director of Surf Ministries. Gave me a summary because I wanted to know. I said, Jonathan, just, just give me a summary of what's been happening with the recent outreach efforts, and he wrote these words. I don't want to read them for you. He said, we're a church in the nation's capital, 
There is a culture and a desire. I love that couplet. Culture and desire to serve our city, our country, and the world. This was best demonstrated at our great day of service in May. Originally, the plan was to pack 17,000 meals to be shipped overseas to communities experiencing food insecurity. However, because so many showed up, so many showed up in that final week, we had to order an additional 8,000 meals. So you all packed 25,000 meals on a Saturday morning. Was it a morning? Yeah, 25,000 meals. And you did it because you were unified. The call went out, and you didn't look to the other person and say, they're talking to you. You said, Jonathan, you're talking to me. That's unity. We're in this together. We accomplish great things when we do it together. But there's diversity. Why diversity? Well, it's another sign that a church is healthy, a Christ-centered community, because God loves diversity. And when I, trust me, when I use the word diversity, I'm not using it in the loaded 21st century way. I'm using it in the biblical way, the plurality, if you prefer, then. Notice what it says in chapter 4, 7 through 11. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So we all don't get the same thing. Therefore, it is said, we said it in the Apostles' Creed, when he ascended on high, he made captivity captive, he gave gifts to his people. And then it says, he also descended. And he who ascended, he ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts that he gave were that some, not everyone, should be apostles, some should be prophets, some should be evangelists, some should be pastors, and some should be teachers. What I love about that passage, it's not even so much the ability to do these things. What Paul is pointing to is that each of us represents a gift to the church. A gift, a different gift. And we're healthier with our diversity. And diversity is all around us, right? Think of an ecosystem of wolves or caribou. Think of an ecosystem, that rich biodiversity of plants. Think of an orchestra with the woodwind and the brass and the percussion and the strings all assembled into a symphony. Think of our brains composed of neurons and axons and and neurotransmitters and together that diversity of the brain produces thought and it's supposed to produce compassion. Think of the way brothers and sisters in a family come together in a time of loss or death or illness. The greater, the whole of the greater, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. That's what diversity, it's so wonderful when it's at play within the local church. And then there's the need for spiritual maturity as another sign that the church is on the right path. And you hear the reading again in verses 12 through 16, Paul says, until, so it, it doesn't stop guys, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. Spiritual maturity. 
It's more than what we know. And I know this is one of the, one of the Achilles heels of being a Presbyterian because we are big on facts. We're big on knowing stuff. And the kind of knowing that Paul has here, the kind of knowledge that Paul has here is more than just a mathematical equation. Three plus three equals six. Well, yes, that is a form of knowing. But the knowing that he's referring to is the kind of relational knowing where I can say, I know Judith. I know Alan. That's, that's much deeper. It's a deeper level of knowing. The Bible is calling us to that relational of knowing Christ, growing up in him, and that is a sign of maturity. We must no longer be children, he says. Time to grow up, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery and by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But, and this takes guts, and I'm not always there, but it's a sign of maturity, speaking the truth in love. I don't like to hurt people's feelings. But the mature person says, I love you, I'm going to tell you the truth. When I went to see my doctor, he wasn't worried about hurting my feelings. He wanted me alive. He wanted me to know the truth. So we speak the truth in love, and we must grow up in every way into him who is the head. The signs that we're on the right path, we're healthy. Unity, diversity, maturity. John Calvin has a wonderful commentary on Ephesians. And I just lifted this note out for you this morning. I love the, I love the picture of the church, he says, as a gathering of God's children where they can be helped, fed like babies, and then guided by her motherly care. They grow up in maturity of faith. That is the reason why, as we continue to put all the difficulties of the pandemic behind us, I'm looking forward to meeting more and more of you online. There's a massive community of you who watch us online, and I'm grateful for that. I want to meet you someday, and I want to speak the truth to you in love. There is something different about being together and worshiping together, and in no way am I invalidating your experience right now, but I just want to encourage you to come back to the physicality of the church, of being together. So what does this mean for us as a congregation? Let me just close with these two possibilities. I'm picturing all of you, and whether you're in a small group, you're in a friends group, you're in a family group, what would it look like if you would then have the courage in those gatherings to ask this question? I want you in my group to tell me, when you look at my life, do you see these signs of unity? Am I a divider? Am I a builder? Do I get along with people? Am I sensitive and aware of other people's needs? Is there this awareness that I'm part of something bigger, unity? Is there diversity? And am I growing? And you could ask them, which do you see is strongest in my life? And which do you think I, I could do a better job on? And then allow that group to help you 
in sorting out where you need to go next. You can, do a, you can do the same thing with this glorious congregation. How are we doing corporately in our unity, our diversity, and our maturity? Which of the signs are missing, which are evident? Are we doing all we can to maintain the unity of this body? Are we doing all we can to welcome and invite every believer with their gifts, encouraging them to use all of the diverse gifts that God has in this place? Why? So that the body might... Are we engaged to hear this in a deeper way? You see, what I want you to hear this morning is that the church is us. I'm always, always tickled when somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, you know, what we need, you know what needs to be done? I think if the church did this and did that, and they're kind of pointing out from themselves, and they totally forget that it's not done that way. The church is us. The question needs to be, it's not what the church needs to do, it's what we need to do, and maybe it's what I need to do. There's no church without us, but that us is the sum total of you and me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the people of God say, would you, would you take a moment and just pray with me? Our Father, again, we are grateful that you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You are opening our eyes so that we can see the wonders of who you are. Lord, we confess once again that we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and we believe in the communion of, of saints. We believe, Lord, that you are up to something in this community for the sake of this region. Now, Lord, help us to listen. Help us to go where you're going. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.